Thank you for leading us in worship. Just when we were singing that song, thinking about how many different ways God is referred to, the names that he goes by. Um, think about in the Old Testament, um, the God who sees me, the God who sees me when no one else seems to and in the situation that I'm in. Waymaker, miracle worker, um, father of compassion, God of all comfort, Lord Almighty. And I think when we, when we pray and we come to God, um, sometimes we need especially one of those specific character aspect of God. And uh, so I want to, let's pray uh, together this morning, just thinking about the different names that God has. Waymaker, we come to you this morning reminded first of how you made a way out of slavery into a freedom and salvation for your people long ago in Egypt. Lord, we think also of how you are the Lord Almighty, the God of the angel armies, Lord that when we are, feel like we are under assault, either from sometimes from doubts, uh, doubts, sometimes from circumstances in life, sometimes from hostility of, of co-workers or even family members. Lord, we thank you that you are God Almighty who strengthens and sustains your people. Lord, you are also the miracle worker. How often, Jesus, you showed us that you are the great miracle worker, doing signs that God had done in the Old Testament, signs that were bringing hope and new life for widows and orphans, for those who had lost hope, for the, for the physically ill. And Lord, uh, there are those among us who need to know that you are the miracle worker. And you are also the promise keeper. Lord, we are often so fickle in our promises. It is so good to know and so encouraging to know that you are the God who keeps his promises. So often we read in your world, word that though we forget, yet you remembered. And when you remember, you always act on the basis of your promises. You do what is needed. And we thank you that you are the promise keeper. And we thank you also that you are the light in the darkness. Lord, there are many situations, experiences in, in life and in this world where the darkness just seems to grow and where the light of your presence is so desperately needed. And we thank you that you are the light of the world. You are the light in the darkness. And we thank you that you are exactly everything that we need. Thank you, Lord, that we can come to you as the one who is all things. Amen. Well, today we want to continue in our series on James, Faithfully Different. Today we're going to talk about conflict. Conflict, it's a part of everyday life that can happen at almost any time and any place. It might be a disagreement at work, a blow-up at home, uh, a fight over a parking spot, especially 
at the beach in summer when they're hard to find. Or it could be a deep divide that forms with others in your friendship circle or even your church. Conflicts can range in degree and intensity from, you know, annoyance to verbal or even physical warfare. We all have our own stories of conflict, and I guarantee they aren't all confined to our life in the world. They also find their way into the life of the church. Thankfully, Christians do not usually resort to fistfights like we do in Canadian hockey, but that doesn't mean emotions don't run just as high and heated. And James, James is clear that when it comes to conflict, Christians should be different. And he takes constructive steps to not only identify the causes of many conflicts, but God's recommended cures for them. Let's look at James. We're going to look at James chapter 4, verses 1 to 12 today. James chapter 4. James right near the, uh, getting close to the end of the Bible past Hebrews. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity or hostility with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. But when you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Well, you may recall it at the end of chapter 3, James contrasted heavenly wisdom with so-called earthly wisdom. The wisdom of the world, he noted, is tainted by envy and selfish ambition, and it results in disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that is from above and the peacemakers who live by it and who sow in peace, James says, will reap a harvest of righteousness. Think about that, especially thinking about, as I was picking blackberries again, you know, harvest time, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Well, at the beginning of chapter 4, James turns his probing eye once again to the destructive cause and effect of worldly wisdom. 
What causes fights and quarrels in the world, he says. No, he isn't talking about conflicts in the world. Notice he says, what causes conflicts among you? Oh, in-house conflict he is talking about. Among you who call yourselves practicing Christians. Now, James knows full well the answer to the question he's asking. But the very way he asks it is arresting. His language of external fights and quarrels and internal battles, it's strong language indeed. And with quick verbal brushstrokes, he paints a picture of a Christian community that is deeply divided and conflicted. And we wonder, what happened? What's going on here? Now, if I think of when things have flared up, you know, in a relationship with someone else, James is, the answer to James's question, you know, seems obvious. What causes courts, fights and quarrels? Well, other people are to blame, right? You know, listen to our language. You always, or you never, or you are so annoying, or other adjectives we throw in, you know. But the answer to the question, that way always tends to escalate a conflict, doesn't it? You know, with each party blaming the other party, and we just get unresolved conflict that just stirs. So, what does James say is the root cause of their fights and quarrels? He says, the problem is not out there, people. It is in here, in us. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? James actually said a very similar thing about temptation back in chapter 1. Each person is tempted when by their own evil desires, right? Now, of course, not all desires are evil. God created us, the Bible tells us, with good desires. And he made much of the world a desirable and pleasing. You know, uh, what a wonderful world. It's kind of a, a take on Genesis, the opening chapters. The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. That part was good. The psalmist will say, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, the problem with our desires, and the word that uh, James uses here is hedone in Greek. Hedonism yeah, gets some of the flavor. They have, our desires have become bent and twisted and perverted by sin. Hedone, in, uh, used in New Testament times, it marks a, a, Christ, a non-Christian orientation to life. It belongs to the sphere that is ruled by ungodly forces. It stands opposed to God and his ways. And so desires twisted by sin affect not only our speech, as James reminded us in chapter 3, but they also wreak havoc in our relationships unless they are restrained and retrained according to God's way and design for us. James, I think he, he performs a conflict autopsy in, in verses 2 to 3, and he exposes the problem of unrestrained and misguided desires. You desire, he says, it's a different word in Greek, this means untamed desires, you know, you have these untamed desires, but you do not have, so you kill. Uh, really? I think he's talking about, you're willing to go to whatever lengths are necessary to get what you did. 
And even Cain, when he went that far, he killed his own brother. You covet, he says, but you cannot have what you want, so you quarrel and fight. When we really, really want something, isn't it amazing how often we think the end justifies the means? We will justify our actions. It's because such and such or or whatever. Well, one reason James says that you do not have is because you do not ask God. And then we might add, and wait for him to provide in his way and in his time. One of the famous stories, of course, in the Bible is Abraham and Sarah, who thought, well, we need to help God out to fulfill his promise. We can't wait any longer. And when we take matters into our own hands, we undermine and even abort some of God's best plans and gifts for us and for others. Think about how uh, Joseph, Joseph and Mary in the New Testament, and Joseph, when he finds out that his fiancée Mary is pregnant, how close he came, right, to aborting the blessing in disguise that God had in store for him. Thinking only of, of the burden not realizing God had a blessing in disguise. Sometimes you do not receive, James says, because you do not ask. And even when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. I remember I had a a cartoon years ago up in my office for a while, and it was a financial seminar, and the leader was, uh, as he was introducing the seminar, he was praying, Lord, guide us to make a real killing in the market. (laughs) Hmm. It's interesting, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 10 to 11, give an alternate picture, and they tell us about how God wants us to be enriched in every way, so that you can be generous on every occasion. And he says, and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. That's a a very different reason, right, for wanting to be enriched. Often we have a lot of getting goals, but we should also have giving goals, right? Or we want a job, we want a position, we want a child, And some of these can be very good desires, but sometimes they're tainted or twisted. We want a child maybe so that they can fulfill our dreams and our desires for them. You know, I can tell you the number of times Little League Baseball, you can see those kids, you know, the dads are just wanting those kids to live out the dream that they couldn't quite achieve. Mm. And by contrast, Hannah in the Old Testament She desperately wanted a child. She cried out to God. God gave that child to her, and she willingly released him back into the service of God, which meant he couldn't live with her and and fulfill maybe her longings and dreams to be a grandmother, etc. Well, James goes on in in verses 4 to 6, and he, he diagnoses, after this autopsy of the conflict, he diagnoses their condition in stark terms. You adulterous people. Wow, his language is blunt. It's blunt, I think, because he knows how prone we are to downplay and to mask over sin with euphemisms, 
with different, better-sounding terms, right? We call lying, oh, no, I was stretching the truth. You can put the word truth in there, just stretching it. Lying? No, right? Um, Oh, well, it was a good business decision. I wonder how much that masks over things sometimes. But James, he calls us on the carpet, and he arrests our attention. Do you not know that friendship with the world means enmity, means hostility with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, being a friend of the world, that sounds so positive, doesn't it? An ally certainly sounds a lot better than being an adversary. But such language masks the real truth. And God is certainly not fooled by it, James says. In fact, as James explains in verse 5, from Scripture, God is deeply offended by our so-called friendship with the world, our alliance with the world. Now, it's important to clarify, as commentators like Peter Davids do, that the world, what James means, the world is not here by James meaning the created order or the earth, which is good. But the whole system of humanity, its institutions, structures, values, and mores, as organized without God, removing God from the equation. Now, I've been reading Rebecca McLaughlin's latest book, The Secular Creed, in which she engages five contemporary claims made without God. She says, across our neighborhood, yard signs declare, in this house we believe that... Black lives matter. Love is love. Oh, slide before that, please. Okay, may I missed it. Uh, Black lives matter. Love is love. Women's rights are human rights. We are all immigrants. Diversity makes us stronger. And signs like this sketch out a secular creed or statement of belief, right? And it centers not on God, but on diversity, equality, and everybody's right to be themselves. So we need to learn to disentangle what Christians can and must affirm from those that we cannot and must not embrace. After all, as McLaughlin points out, these truths have come to us from Christianity, But if you rip out the foundation, you don't uncover a better basis for human rights and equality. You'll uncover an abyss that cannot even tell you what a human being is. Without Christian beliefs about humanity, the yard signs, she says, the yard signs claims aren't worth the cardboard that they are written on. And so she says, when we pass the signs... I tell my children that in our house, we believe that black lives matter because they matter to Jesus. We don't believe that love is love, but that God is love and that he gives us glimpses of his love through different kinds of relationship. We believe women's rights are human rights because God made us, male and female, in his image. And for that reason, we believe that babies in the womb have rights as well. She goes on. See, allying ourselves with the world on beliefs and behaviors 
that oppose God and his ways, they are bound to stir God up. Do you think Scripture says without reason that he, that is God, jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell within us? How many wonder, is the spirit God longs for in us referring to our human spirit or the Holy Spirit? I think either or both are possibilities. For the human spirit in each of us is a gift from God. Genesis says that, tells us that God created us with a spirit. And I think that means that a capacity uniquely to humans that we are able to relate to him. And so naturally, God, his jealousy is aroused when we choose, when anyone chooses the world over him. That is this world system without him in it at all. A tower of Babel would be the Old Testament symbol of trying to build something great, but removing God from the equation. And in terms of the Holy Spirit for believers, the Holy Spirit is the special gift of God's very presence given to us when we entrust our lives to him, when we open up our lives and invite God to be the center of our lives. And so Acts chapter 2 verse 38, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. And people are, are convicted by what he's saying. You know, God sent Jesus to save the world and wicked people, and you were a part of that crowd, you said, we don't want to have any. He's the problem. He's not the solution. And they were cut to the heart when were, Peter was saying, no, he was the solution. And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then he says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, God's empowering presence. Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, will say in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have received from God. That means you are not your own, he says. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your whole bodies. Yet God does not reject the kind of adulterous people that we can be and that James talks about. But he gives us, he gives all who repent more grace. Grace upon grace already received. He is willing to give us grace. The desire, that's a grace of God, a changed desire, a desire to want to follow him and to seek him. The strength that we did not have in our own to do that, he was willing to give us that strength. The strength that we need to turn from our adultery with the world and, and to return to him with our undivided devotion and allegiance. And James, he quotes an Old Testament scripture, Proverbs 3, verse 34, to support both the danger of opposing God and also the blessing available for those who humble themselves. Because God opposes, he resists the proud, but he shows favor and grace to the humble. And James takes this verse and he says, this is a foundation a solid basis on which he then invites and calls them to repentance, to turn and to make God as the foundation. 
And he says then in verses 7 to 10, submit yourselves then to God or resubmit yourselves, not to the world. Such submission to God is accomplished first, he says, by resisting the devil. Remember, God also resists. He resists the proud and the arrogant. Resistance is a very God-like thing to do. It really is. And this is echoed by other New Testament writers as well. Peter uses almost the same language. Now, the devil would have us believe that resistance is futile. Uh, I'm a bit of a Star Trek fan, and uh, so often in Star Trek, there's the the Borgs that appear, and they seem to be just like an all-consuming system. They are absorbing everything, and their line is, resistance is futile. You know, you will be assimilated. The devil would have us believe that, especially when so many people and institutions in our society have bought in to the secular creed. Some good things in it, but removing God as the foundation. But the scriptures remind us that resistance is not futile. Just uh, reading recently, I'm preparing for a fall series on Exodus, and right there in in Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh seems to be totally you know, assimilating everything into his will. And he even brings in the midwives, Shipra and Pua, and he orders them to, to kill the Hebrew boys when they are born. And yet it says, and they, but they feared God, and they didn't do it. And uh, they become subversive. They didn't believe resistance was futile. Did they believe that they might lose their jobs, their lives over it? I think they probably did. But they believed, they feared God more than Pharaoh. And Moses' mother in the story, right? She risks her life to save the one. Think of Daniel and his friends in Babylon. Resistance is not futile. Submitting ourselves to God requires not only resisting the devil, James says, but also coming near to God. Do that, James says, and you will find that he will come near to you. What an amazing encouragement for us, isn't it? To know that God will respond like that when we have been resisting and opposing him. Thinking about the the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15 in the New Testament. Remember the prodigal son, he has the aha moment as he has, you know, come to the end of the rope. And he begins to return. And it says, even while he was a long way off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And what does he do? He ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Now they all knew in that culture what that meant. To to run out, that was running the gauntlet. You see, when you have shamed not only the father, but you have shamed the community, what should have happened in that culture is the son should have returned and the community would have been lined up on each side to hurl insults, even beatings upon him coming back so that he would learn his lesson and others would learn that. And the father runs the gauntlet for him instead, taking all of that shame. He so desperately wants to welcome his son in and so that he will not be scared off or doubt that this is the right thing. And our heavenly father, he longs to welcome us home. But turning to him 
must involve turning from sin. It involves, as James points out, being cleansed and purified from all sin. Wash your hands, you sinners, he says, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Notice, repentance involves both our hands, that is, actions, and he says, and our hearts, our, our affections, our attachments, our will. And when we truly understand how we have grieved God, we will, as James says, grieve, mourn, and wail. And change our laughter to mourning and our joy to gloom. Now, let's be clear what James is saying. I think he's saying that we should stop laughing at the wrong things. Crude jokes that were cracked us up or sexual humor. James is like, no, 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 no. Stop laughing at those. You should grieve over, that, over how that was misused and abused. And your joy, things that you found joy in before that grieved God, they've got to stop. Remember a friend, Bob, um, he spent a lot of time in the bar and strip clubs. And when he came to faith, I remember uh, he said, somebody asked me to go out to the bar with them today. And he says, I just can't do it anymore. He said, I wasted so much of my life there. I just can't stand to do it. See what he found joy in before. He's like, what a waste. Now, James isn't saying there's no place for laughter or joy in the Christian life. Brothers and sisters, uh, joy is one of the very things that God brings into our lives by his spirit. So often in the book of Acts, it, it combines together, and they were filled with joy, sometimes, and they were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. It is one of the marks of the Christian faith, far more than speaking in tongues in Acts, is that they were filled with joy. Joy. But we do need to take seriously sin. Think of David in the Old Testament. What he did when he saw suddenly what he had done, not as an affair or something, but as through God's eyes. And suddenly, in Psalm 51, he cries out to God, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, of a, of a capital offense worthy of death. I think if we have never wept over any of our spiritual adulteries, then it is highly doubtful that we are truly converted, truly changed. For when we see our, our friendship with the world as rebellion against God, we can no longer treat it as some trivial thing that, you know, God just sweeps under the carpet. Friends, it costs no less than the blood of Jesus for us to be saved, freed, forgiven. Sin is not cheap. It is not. And I love what Sam Albury says in his book on, on James. He says, Godly grief over sin is where our repentance must begin, but it is not where God leaves us. Mm -mm. God humbles us not to keep us down, but to lift us up. He says, it is the great paradox of the Christian life that we weep over our sin while singing in astounded joy of our salvation. 
That's God's goal. In the final section, verses 11 to 12, James takes us from the the vertical dimension of our repentance to the horizontal, to our relationship with one another. Brothers and sisters, he says, this means do not slander one another, which is often what happens when we get into a conflict, isn't it? That person's such an idiot or, or whatever. And running others down has got to go, he says. For anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges, that is, you know, judges them and throws away the key, speaks against the law and judges it. After all, the law, as James reminded us earlier, calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Do you want to be slandered? Judged? Oh, he says, but when we slander and pass judgment in others, we are acting as if we are exempt from God's law that it only applies to others. And when we do that, we are putting ourselves above the law, sitting in judgment over it, and James says, and over God. Hmm. The reality is that there is only one lawgiver and judge. Remember who's the judge, James says. The one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? See, if we reject the one true lawgiver and judge and and then appoint ourselves in his place using our standards, you know that there's an exception clause for things with us, then we are ultimately rejecting the one who is able to save us. God is the only one true and ultimate lawgiver and judge, and he is the one who is the ultimate savior, the only one. And, and both roles in the same person, in God. And it is other folly to try and replace him as judge and savior. Not recommended. Well, what are some takeaways for us? I think first, James is really encouraging us to ask God to expose the deeper cause of our conflict. Now, some conflicts are inevitable. They are unavoidable. You know, we cannot be celebrating and affirming what the world is. You know, the atheist, you know, convention, uh, probably not going to really find that a a great, you know, we're going to be celebrating those. No. Some conflicts are inevitable and, and unavoidable. But we always have choices about how we respond How Jesus responded to people that he disagreed with is a lesson for us. So often, what we see is that Jesus believed these were people even that he he disagreed with fundamentally. They were people to be loved. People to be loved. And that was what drove him. And this also meant he challenged them. Absolutely, he challenged them. But as we talked about last week, He dipped the truth in honey, if you will, right? How he responded was not belligerent. How he responded was as one who deeply cared and loved. And that's what James does. That's why he tells us the hard truth. And secondly, resist friendship with the world and its ruler. We often don't realize how shrewd the devil is at undermining our allegiance to God. 
I think right in the opening sin, you know, in Genesis chapter 3, Satan comes along and he reframes God as a miser. God who has given all this generosity, did God really say, you know, you must not eat from any tree? Notice right away he's reframed. And so often, I think in our world, God is reframed as a miser. Rather than God has something better in mind or a better way to achieve true human flourishing. There is much to critique in the distant and recent history of the church, and there is a lot of critique going on in our world. But there is also so much to commend in the history of the church. Through untold number of lives that have been changed, institutions that have started as a result. If you ever want to read about the great, some of the great awakening in England, for example, what the change, dramatic change that happened, or in the United States, um, it is worth realizing that, uh, that the church is not just, God is not just wants to shelve that and critique the church and kick it out the door and jump on the latest bandwagon and said the secular creed. A creed without God is not going to last, and it will not bring true human flourishing. And thirdly, resubmit yourselves to God and his ways. We are discipled so much in the values and ways of the world, hour after hour, day after day after day, and we need to be discipled in the values and ways of God and his kingdom. I want to invite the uh, worship team to come up as they're coming. Let's pray. Waymaker, we sang about you earlier today. We thank you for your servant, James. He's not very Canadian. He really says things very bluntly. But he knows not only how grieved you are when we choose the ways of the world over you, but he knows that it's deathly for us. It's deadly. And he wants us to find life, an abundant life, as you do in you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would change our very attachments and affections, that we would see you for you, who you really are and your ways, that we would see those around us who are trying to do life without you, Lord, as people to be loved and to be invited to making you the center of their lives. For Lord, you are the one who made us and who saved us. And you, Lord, are the one who is at work saving the world. Amen. Yes, Lord, build your kingdom here. That's, that's a big thing to ask. Just before I read the benediction, just a reminder that we have people available uh, on our prayer team uh, at the front here to your right, to my left. And uh, if you would like prayer or to share maybe a, an answer to prayer as well, please take advantage of that opportunity. And uh, we also have coffee and tea, and uh, you can stick around and, uh, and talk and fellowship together.
Peter ends his second letter with these words, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, Jesus, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forevermore. Amen.